Calvin Heimberg is an absolute dog when it comes to disc golf. Absolute dog in disc golf. Hey everybody, what is up? It's Antonio. Welcome to episode 10. We did it. Episode 10 here on Teach Play Disc Golf, a Gladiator Disc Golf podcast. I am so excited uh, for this episode. I have some really cool things planned for you all, uh, but it's just, oh man, this last week of disc golf has been crazy. So much to talk about, so much to talk about, so much to share, but man, uh, Calvin Heimberg, dog. I know I've already said it like seven times, and I don't know about you, but I am a fan of the Pat McAfee show, so uh, I'm definitely channeling some of that energy right now, and uh, man, it is just incredible watching him play, and we're going to get into some of that in a little bit, but first, let's go ahead and let's run through the show. So I got my notes here. Obviously, we're going to talk about Calvin Heimberg, but first, we're going to look talk about some things regarding Ricky. We're going to cover. Uh, we're going to cover uh, Calvin and Cat's victories at the Jonesboro Open. We're going to talk about some pretty crazy stuff that just happened earlier today before this recording. Thank goodness it happened before this recording. But the Disc Golf Pro Tour and Jomez are working together even more closely than they already were. So we'll get into some of those details. If we have time, I'll talk about some of my disc golf this past weekend and some of the stuff that's coming up this weekend. So I'm really honored for this next part because the show following all that conversation about current events in disc golf, I'm going to be covering and answering some questions that you guys asked me and shared with me, whether it's from YouTube or from my Discord server or other disc golf communities that I posted on. I'm really excited to answer some of your questions. So without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, so in last week's episode, I talked a little bit about Ricky, or actually a decent bit about Ricky, and it's not the first time we've discussed him and basically his Lyme disease condition this season, Um, but that was one week into him taking his two-week break, and now it's been two weeks, and he posted about it and shared some information. Basically, Ricky is saying that he's he enjoyed his two weeks in clear water. They were super helpful. He's feeling better and healthier, but he's not ready for competition. At least that is my understanding based on what he said. And then the post following that I actually saw earlier today was basically just promoting uh, this, this insecticide spray or this bug repellent spray, basically. It repels a bunch of different things. It seems to be more naturally based, which I think is really cool. Um, and you know, there's a lot of naturally based things out there that do work just as good as the other stuff. So I don't have an issue with him doing that. I think it's very uh, timely, given that he is in the middle of dealing with this Lyme disease stuff. All I'll say about this is that I hope his uh, recovery continues to improve. I hope we can see him soon. Uh, I will stand, as of right now, I will stand by what I said last week. I'm not anticipating on seeing him compete in the month of May and probably even in the month of June, which is also when I think Worlds is. Uh, So I'm not anticipating that, uh, which is a shame. But 
I would rather not see Ricky compete for the first half of this year or this entire year if it means that we can then have Ricky competing for three, five, seven, ten more years at the top of the MPO division, uh, which, by the way, is getting flooded with amazing talent right now. So who even knows if being able to compete at the top level five to ten years from now is even a possibility for some of the older pros that we're seeing. And I say older as in like they're in their 30s, not even the high 30s like low 30s we're just seeing a lot of really young talent in the low in their low to mid 20s um, so we'll see what happens with all of that but i'm really hopeful uh, that he continues to improve and that we'll get to see ricky soon so ricky i don't know that you're ever going to hear this but hope you get well soon man can't wait to see you back out on the tour you're an awesome person awesome player we definitely cannot wait to see you compete again now, let's go ahead and let's talk about some people who did compete. We're going to folk, we're going to talk about the Jonesboro Open in its entirety uh, later in the show shortly after this, but I just want to focus right now on the two winners, Calvin Heimberg and Kat Mersch. And um, I won't go over the entire weekend of golf for them. I'll highlight the, the final round right now, but I'll say this about the final round for both of them. Um, kind of, you know, ironically here, there was a point in the final round where it was possible slash highly likely uh, that they may not even win. Cat uh, parred like the first four or five holes where a lot of her competitors um, were birdieing and nobody really went crazy low on the final day. Uh, there was a lot of wind, both in MPO and FPO. Nobody went really crazy low. But there were because there was a lot more wind, a lot more weather conditions, which is what I was expecting, because that's normally what happens at the Jonesboro Open. Um, but yeah, so at one point in each of their respective rounds, Kat and Calvin, I didn't think that they were going to win because even if they were only one or two strokes back, whoever was leading was playing confidently and consistently, throwing good, reliable shots. They were reading the wind well. And I think at different points, the tide started to turn. Uh, obviously, if you don't know this already, sorry, spoilers, but it's been around for a couple of days now. Cat went to a playoff with Haley King. So it didn't even get finished in, the, in 18 holes. They had to play one playoff hole. I was hoping that it was going to go for longer, but it didn't. It only lasted one playoff hole. Uh, Haley King really got in some rough shape off the tee and on her approach. Uh, so that was unfortunate, but super happy for Kat. Um, you know, she shared in an interview some things, uh, you know, just growing up, her life, kind of her life story. And it was just really great to see her win. And, you know, Kat has really, she's been around for a couple of years playing competitively, not like seven or 10 years, but I think like the last three years, she's really been coming onto the scene more and more. And I think last year was her first year doing a full tour. And she really came onto the scene, really competed well. She had been in contention a few times or had top five and top 10 finishes. I actually think she finished second at Jonesboro last year. And she's a native Arkansas, Arkansan, I think is what they're called. So it's really cool that her first uh, Disc Golf Pro Tour victory is in her home state, Uh you know, it's kind of hard to say necessarily that you can have like home field advantage unless it's like a course you grew up playing, uh, you know, and all that in disc golf. But it definitely felt like 
things were in her favor. Um, she just played really well. She had the heart behind every shot. She had the motivation. And you could see that all come out when she won, when she made her final putt to win. It was it was just awesome to see. Really happy for her. A lot of emotion in that victory. And um, it's just really, really cool to see someone experience that. You know, we... We have to understand like a lot of these pros are working for years and some of them, depending when they started playing disc golf, like most of their life working to this moment and to finally win something like that is just inc an, an incredible feeling and an incredible accomplishment uh, with the, all those years of hard work. And the thing is, I from what I've heard and what I've learned and what I've just witnessed, it's always hardest winning the first one. The first of anything is always the hardest to do because it's brand new, it's uncharted territory. That's why um, it's that it's that sweetest victory almost in a sense, that first victory for her. And now she knows how to win, she knows what it takes, she knows the emotions, the things that go on in her head and how to overcome them. And it's really exciting because I'm hoping we see a lot more of Kat Merch. She's uh, she's a really interesting person. She's a lot of fun on the mic with her uh, Macho Man Randy Savage references and you know sort of persona that she was uh, exemplifying. So really cool to see that. Just really happy for her. Um, you know, it, it, it definitely meant a lot to her to win and to win in her home state. And so that's just really exciting for her uh side note um <laughs> i wasn't planning on saying this but it it just came up uh as i'm replaying like the the video footage from when she won it was like all her friends and then there was nico <laughs> like giving her a hug and in case you don't know they were a couple last year going into this season they broke up but uh Nico still posts about her and like congratulatory stuff. And then he went in for the hug and everything. And so just really interesting stuff. I don't have a whole lot of commentary, but I started laughing to myself a little bit uh, because she completely ignored him. So that was great. <laughs> but anyway, so that is Catch Journey. Calvin's Journey was a roller coaster. And that is why I started the show saying that Calvin is an absolute dog on the disc golf course. It is just incredible watching him play because even when, you know, he, he uh, I believe he bogeyed a hole and gave Eagle the lead. I'm trying to remember their scorecards off the top of my head, but basically down one or two strokes with only like three holes to go. And most players would feel so completely defeated. He goes, and I think it was on hole 17, sinks a circle two putt for eagle and just like brings it back up to 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 tie the game because i think eagle take took a bogey on that hole and it's just he is relentless calvin is relentless on off the tee and especially on the putting green i mean he is by far the most complete and the hottest disc golfer on tour right now it, he's just playing so so well and you can never count him out He's just been so consistent. I was listening to the commentary and I forget who it was that said it, but basically of all the pros who have competed on the Disc Golf Pro Tour, like Paul McBeth, Ricky Wysocki, Calvin has been the number one Disc Golf Pro Tour player 
in the history of that stat. And that's been since 2020. So obviously it's only about three to four years worth of statistics. But when you just consider how many world champions um, are on that list and how long they've been one of the top players, um, it's pretty incredible that Calvin has been the number one ranked disc golf pro tour player which is based on a separate point system, by the way. It's not ratings-based. We know as of right now that Ginnon Burr is the number one disc golfer ratings-based, but disc golf pro tour points-based, Calvin is the number one golfer and has been longer than anyone. They were also saying that he is 100 points, I think, ahead of Gannon, who's in second place, and I can't recall... The, how the point system works, but basically they were talking, you know, him winning now is basically going to put him another 30 points ahead of Gann and just separating that distance from first to second and obviously the rest of the field. And so it's almost like getting to the point where for anyone to catch up to Calvin, and I'm not wishing this on him, but it's like he's going to have to miss a bunch of pro tour events. He's going to have to possibly get injured and we don't want that. But it's just what I'm saying is, the, the, the space that he is building between him and everybody else for pro tour points is almost becoming insurmountable because he's just been so consistent. He hasn't won every event. He's won a couple events already, and been in, but he's also been podium finishes for a lot of them. And that's really what's going to set you apart on the pro tour standings. So super happy for Calvin, super happy for Kat. Uh, they both earned it they worked really really hard for those victories and so we want to give them their praise their laurels that kind of thing uh disc golf is just in a like i've said many times on this show is in a really special place right now um there's just so much great competition and i think with with cat winning i know actually i think kristen has ruined the pattern a little bit because she has won multiple events already but pretty much besides kristen it's always been a new uh champion at a disc golf pro tour elite series event this year and i think even silver series included in that so i think cat uh cat can't say her name Kristen is the only repeat champion this year. So that's really cool on the FPO side. But then on the MPO side, it's like, yes, we've had some repeat champions in Calvin and Gannon, but that's we're, we're looking at a, a field that is so thick with competition. There's so much competition every week, and it can go anyone's way. Like literally last week at Champions Cup, Calvin did not perform super great. And now he goes and wins the Jonesboro Open, by the way, for the third time. He is the only repeat um, Disc Golf Pro Tour champion besides Ricky, who has won the Ledgestone Open, they said two or three times. So like, that's not obviously within a season, but he has won the Jonesboro Open three times, which he's one of two people to ever do that for the same Disc Golf Pro Tour event year over year, which just shows you his domination over the last three years, specifically at this event. So that is really cool, really awesome to see Calvin performing so well. I am so excited to see what else he can accomplish. I really hope at the next couple of majors, i.e. Worlds and then a USDGC in October, I believe that is, um, 
it'll be i'm really hoping that he can win something big he's earned it he deserves it he just has to put it together on those days and kind of filter through some of the pressure that i think he's been putting on himself at those events knowing it's those championships that are really going to bring him he's you can almost argue he's already earned his way sort of into disc golf hall of fame but with a couple of world titles, USDGC titles, other majors, bringing those titles onto him, just going to add to the accolades, going to really cement him potentially as one of the greatest professional disc golfers ever. We'll see. He's still very early in his career, but I don't think it's really a hot take to say that about Calvin. Um, But that's all I have to say about that. There is one other person that we should talk about. Um, when it comes to the Jonesboro Open. And there's not a whole lot to say about this person because it was one phenomenal round. Uh, But not that, you know, he's a bad golfer. I love James Conrad. And it is such a shame that when he shot minus 17 on Saturday, round two, he shot minus 17 and there's hardly any footage. Like that is the most heartbreaking thing ever um i didn't actually get to watch live coverage that day but um i heard about it and i couldn't find any post produce because james wasn't on the lead card he wasn't on chase card i don't even think he was on uh the third card it's so he was on like the fourth fifth or sixth card and shot minus 17 and so they had to scramble and get cameras to go record him and i heard that that didn't even happen until like the back nine and what's crazy is he had all birdies one eagle and two pars so 15 birdies One eagle, that's the 17, and two pars. 18 holes. Imagine if he had birdied one of the holes. He would have tied Macbeth for the best round ever, minus 18. But imagine if he birdied everything and got that eagle. Not only would he have surpassed Macbeth's minus uh, minus 18, he would have shot, you know, the the craziest round ever because you can't just always go shoot a minus 19. Now, I know obviously math is working in our favor here and it may not be that exciting, but just thinking about like how difficult that is, how difficult it is to shoot something like that, to put it into perspective. Obviously, MPO is playing longer tees than FPO, but the winning score on the FPO side, I believe, was minus 22 going into the playoff. James shot minus 17 in one round. Like It is so hard to shoot that low. And that's why it's like, even to for me to say, oh, one or two more birdies, like that, he played as perfect as he could possibly play. He just didn't get that 18th birdie or that 17th, you know, um, under par stroke. And so it's just, really uh it's just crazy and we just need to appreciate it i i'm sure that is something he will always remember along with his world championship uh but i was just thinking about that it's like man if he would have done it i mean he beat paul for worlds and then he would have potentially tied or beaten paul's uh lowest score record uh of a 
as far as I know of a PDGA sanctioned event. So that's just incredible. And if you're unsure how difficult that is, think about a local course near you. You could even pick your home course, like one that you've played 25, 50, 100, 200 times. You know that course like the back of your hand, right? How many times have you shot minus 17? <laughs> I've never I've never come close to shooting minus 17. All right. And not only did he do minus 17, but it's on a course he only plays once a year. And it's a long course and there's normally wind. And it's it's just incredible to think about. And so I won't bore you guys anymore, kind of, you know, fangirling over here over um over James Conrad's minus 17 round, but I wanted to talk about that because it's just so cool. So much disc golf history and amazing accomplishments that we're experiencing and seeing. And so it's a lot of fun stuff happening right now. Um, Yeah, so let's go ahead and let's pivot and let's talk about the Disc Golf Pro Tour and Jomez. When I saw this, I'm going to kind of walk you through my emotions here because they've, they've changed about this whole thing. So when I first saw this, I was like, oh, let's go. That is awesome. Good for the Disc Golf Pro Tour. Good for Jomez. I mean, they were already working closely together. Um, Awesome, awesome stuff. But then I started thinking about it some more. And then I started seeing people posting online about Instagram, uh, Disc Golf forums, that kind of thing. And I saw some uh, thoughts about that. And then I started thinking about it. And it's just like, man, this sucks. <laughs> this is actually not that good. So let me fill you in with some of the details here. I highly recommend you check out Iceberg TV. Uh, he published a quick little video about this earlier today. Uh, he doesn't have a, a ton more detail than what I can share with you. Uh, he basically just read the Disc Golf Pro Tours press release about it. Um, and there's, you know, some reading between the lines that we're able to do with this. But basically going back to last year, Somehow, the Disc Golf Pro Tour got all these individual post-produced coverage companies to pay them to record and produce post-produced coverage. I still feel like that is crazy. I I know like, oh, it's your Disc Golf Pro Tour. You own the rights to the tournament and that footage. And so it makes sense for them to pay you. But it's also like... You, disc golf is built on post-produced coverage, free post-produced coverage. So it's almost like how could the Disc Golf Pro Tour not be paying those post-produced companies like Jomez Pro, CCDG, GK Pro, Gatekeeper Media, those companies, How why weren't they potentially paying them? So basically they were able to get Jomez to say for two years of MPO and this year FPO lead card coverage, that's a lot of money in disc golf that is a lot of money in disc golf and so it's just um, basically what ended up happening is and and iceberg talks about this a good bit as well so i'm sharing some of that information here is it almost sounds like jomez financially declined a little bit so patreon dropped they had a a big drop in patreon um or they had a big drop in patrons i should say their sales 
uh, on their website went down. And that's just natural business stuff. But the reason why that's so important here is because that all went down when they needed money the most. So there's that all playing involved here. And then basically what it seems to be kind of between lines and I believe uh, Jomez, Jonathan, he uh, did an interview with Upshot. I did not get to see it yet. But based on the uh, disc golf community's reaction, he did not seem thrilled and excited about this. And so it's pretty clear reading between the lines, you know, just being a person and being able to observe human emotion and hear inflection or the lack thereof and seeing uh, less excitement than there maybe should be or you would assume there would be. It almost sounds like Jomez had no choice but to get bought out because they couldn't pay the Disc Golf Pro Tour the $250,000. And so that's really a shame. Uh, if that is how it all plays out, I think we'll hear, we'll eventually find out a little bit more. Um, I think we'll hear some more information regarding this and kind of what all is going on, but it may not. I mean, similar to the whole Prodigy and Gannon Burr, things were allowed and in the public eye and things have been really quiet. And so I wouldn't be surprised if because the big announcement, everything is loud right now and then things go pretty quiet. So we'll have to see if what comes of this, if any more information is shared, I'll keep my eye out. Um, but if you see anything, go ahead and like link it in the comments if, it's, if there's something I missed. But definitely, um, I am now in the position of it. If I was Jomez, if I was Jonathan, I would be so upset right now. Because it's one of those where he's talked about it, especially when they did Shomez during quarantine, that he was like at Worlds one time on the final nine and was just like, nobody's recording this. And so he just started recording it and then posted it and got a bunch of views. And literally the most humblest of beginnings, Jomez was able to grow into this disc golf giant with almost 500,000 subscribers on the disc golf channel. That's just incredible to think. And to now... If everything I said before is true, to then build it up to this and then have to basically sell out or get bought out by another bigger company because they run the whole tour, that's just really got to be deflating. And But to that, I'll just say I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere in this buyout potentially if that's what it is that there isn't a clause in there where jomez could buy back their rights so that they're no longer owned by the disc golf pro tour because he went from being ceo and president and creative director to now just president and creative director so i really would love to see that happen for their sake but for the disc golf pro tour this is great for them they're getting high quality stuff really really good for the pro tour um I'm glad that we're going to continue getting high-quality post-produced coverage because Jomez has always been the leading edge in that. They've done really, really good stuff with that. And so, yeah, now let's go ahead and let's talk, or rather, let's answer some of your disc golf questions. Alrighty, so let's go ahead and let's answer some of your disc golf questions. Like I said, I posted on my Discord server 
link in the bio if you want to join that. I posted on YouTube on the community tab, and I also posted in some other disc golf forums that I'm a part of. So we're going to look at a couple questions that got quite a bit from everyone. So we won't touch on everything this episode, but I will start to you know be keeping track of these questions and pulling them in because I think it's a really good opportunity. I mean, part of this you know, part of the purpose of this podcast is to teach and answer questions. And so we're going to do that. Um, this is more of a uh, consumer or uh, fan driven episode, which I'm just really excited about for episode 10. It's a huge milestone for me for this channel. Uh, I'm just really enjoying it. And I hope you guys are too. And if you are, I would really, really appreciate if you're listening podcasts, please leave a review five stars, you know, leave a review so it shares this podcast with other people. That would mean so much to me. I'd really appreciate it. And if you're on YouTube, go ahead and like this video and comment down below. It's maybe some disc golf questions or what you think, uh, you know, yeah, some disc golf questions that you have, and I'll be sure to get to them and answer them. So let's go ahead and let's go with the first question here from Andrew Anderson, 8952. He said, what are the body mechanics behind throwing a forehand roller? I can't figure it out. They just hit the ground and fall or roll immediately left or right. So that's a great question. I haven't talked about throwing rollers a lot on my channel, and that's mainly because I don't throw a ton of rollers. Um, and he specified here uh, a forehand roller. So we'll just talk about that. that. That's actually the one kind of roller that I do throw. Um, as someone who's always had a really good forehand for my skill level, it's always been more comfortable for me to throw the forehand roller versus the backhand roller. So in the forehand roller, take whatever, however you hold the disc in your forehand, and that's exactly the same grip that you're gonna have, Andrew. So right off the bat, keep your grip the same. You don't have to change the way you're throwing your roller. You don't have to change the grip of it at all. Now, the other thing, and this is something that I've learned from experience, so when you go to throw the forehand roller, you have to determine your landing zone. Are you trying to get the disc to hit the ground for the first time 100 feet in front of you or 10 feet in front of you? Because that's going to uh, affect your release point and how the disc is going to react and your release angle. So there's quite a few things that we'll tackle here and uh, we can only really keep it surface level because a lot of this just comes with testing the discs that you have in the bag. So first things first, when you go to release the disc out of your hand, regardless of how steep you're throwing it, one thing I've always noticed is that on the forehand, the disc doesn't go necessarily um, straight out of your hand. So I'm throwing it from my side. It's not necessarily going to go this way. What I have found is that on the forehand roller, when I throw it, in the air, the disc starts to pan over. And that has to do with the glide of the disc, the stability of the disc. So when you're throwing a forehand roller, you have to keep in mind, especially if you're trying to hit a gap that's in front of you, you almost wanna to release to the right of it, if you're a righty that is, if lefty it's you wanna to aim to the left of it, so that as the disc is coming down and uh, towards the ground, it's going to cross down in the middle of that gap and not hit a tree or some other obstacle that's in the way. Now, I like for, I mainly do forehand rollers to like get out of jail. And so I'm normally trying to hit a spot five to 10 feet in front of me. And so the other thing with the forehand roller, so you obviously got to keep it a little bit more to the right for a righty forehand is you got to keep in mind that you don't want to throw it straight down. 
One of the things that could be happening is if you're trying to throw a roller and you throw it straight down, it's going to bounce up and lose some of that momentum. Remember, you want the disc to roll, so you have to throw it on an angle uh, relative to the ground that's going to continue to carry that momentum, which is why you aim out in front of you, not directly down. And so this is another part where not just you know, laterally, where are you trying to aim, but vertically as well in the sense of where on the ground are you trying to hit? Are you trying to, do you need to avoid some twigs and sticks and rocks and sand dunes and that kind of thing? So that's all coming into play um, and you need to keep that in mind, but you want to aim out in front of you. Now, in regard to how the disc reacts on the ground, what I have found is that understable discs, and this is, remember this is, I don't throw forehand rollers a ton, but in my experience throwing them, understable discs will typically finish on the bottom of their flight plate. So basically you would see the stamp on the top of the disc. Overstable discs, are going to normally finish and curl to where they land on the top of their flight plate so you see the underside of the disc. And that has to do with the stability of the discs and how they shape. Now, you can, um, you can manipulate the way the disc lands by the release angle on the ground. So if you throw more of a cut roller where it's very low to the ground, even an overstable disc may not necessarily flip over depending on what you're trying to do if you're trying to get something to curl around a corner. And likewise, if you do something more vertically, even if it might be a more uh, understable disc, it may still flip over onto its flight plate because you threw it so vertically. And so the biggest thing about forehand rollers, just like backhand rollers, is you really want to test some things out. And I recommend finding discs in your bag that you feel comfortable throwing on that forehand roller line and just learning what they do and spending time out in the field. That's really the best way to learn what happens. But for this question, basically aim a little to the right, watch whether you're doing understable to the right, overstable to the left when it's finishing and curling out. And then make sure you're aiming in front of you so that you give the disc an opportunity to roll and not just directly on the ground. So Andrew, good question. I hope I answered your question. Uh, basically, uh, I hope I answered it well enough for you. Uh, if you have any further questions, please comment down below. I'd be more than happy to clarify some things for you. Now, I'm gonna go to some questions on my Discord server and I'm really excited to share some of these with you. So we have a really cool question. Uh, one of the first episodes we talked about wind, tailwind, headwind, crosswind, how to throw in the wind. So I have a question here that says, I was trying to figure this out today. Do lower speed discs go further in a strong tailwind than faster speeds with the same relative stability? This is a really good question. And just right off the bat, one thing we have to keep in mind here is that it depends on your skill level. Definitely, that's the case. A putter or mid-range going further than a driver will go further in the tailwind if you can't really throw a driver. Now, remember, in a tailwind, everything is going to fly more overstable. So we have to keep that in mind. That's why you see a lot of people throwing understable discs with a tailwind because it'll stable it out. So 
If you can't really throw drivers very far or they go about the same distance as a putter or mid-range goes for you, you're probably going to experience better distance with the putter or mid-range because you can get those discs up to speed. And so the tailwind, while it will make them more overstable, there's going to be more glide and carry. Whereas with the driver, you'll still get some more distance, but it, that disc is already going to be overstable for you. And now the tailwind is going to make it additionally overstable even more overstable so in this in this uh theory in this example you won't be getting more distance now in my personal experience if you throw distance drivers and fairways and mids and putters and you have an incrementally inc you incrementally increase your distance with each class of discs that you're throwing you're they're all going to go further and so i don't necessarily necessarily think um, one will always go further than the other. Percentage-wise, you would I would argue that the discs with more glide are going to have a higher percentage, um, uh, carry a higher percentage down the fairway. For example, just for simplicity of numbers, let's say you can throw a mid-range 100 feet. This is just for simplicity of numbers and math. You throw a mid-range 100 feet with no wind. Tailwind, you now throw it 20% further. So that means you can throw it 120 feet. Well, that that's, if that principle applies, well, it's possible then, well, if you can only then throw a, a, a fairway driver or a distance driver 120 feet, but because that's already your max distance for it with the tailwind, you might only get an additional 10 feet with it or 15 feet. So there we see a smaller percentage, whereas the mid-range went from 100 to 120, the driver would have gone from uh, 100, or excuse me, 120 to 130 or 135. So 15 feet out of 120 feet additional on top of that 120 feet is a smaller percentage than the 20 foot in distance you would have gotten with the mid range. And so all of that, hopefully that wasn't too confusing. It made sense in my brain. Um, but basically think of it like percentage wise, unless of course you are throwing distance drivers over 400, over 450 feet, you may find that your putters, mids and drivers you may find that those slower discs, because they're slower and have more glide, traditionally will go further or just as far as your drivers. And so really you'll want to make the decision based on what is the kind of shot that you need on a particular hole with a tailwind and how much variability do you want? Because even if I throw a Comet with a tailwind, it's going to fade less than if I throw uh, a Mockingbird with a tailwind because the mockingbird is faster. It's got a little bit more fade on it uh, because it is a driver, even though the numbers are fairly similar as a driver, it's going to fade harder than a mid range. And so the tailwind's going to seemingly affect it more with that fade. But I will also probably get more distance because I can throw a mockingbird significantly further than I can throw a comet. So it really comes down to your skill level and I would encourage you, instead of always looking at distance, look at percentage if you can map it out. So if you have a windy day one day and you're doing field work, like that'd be a great opportunity to kind of map out your distances and see just how much increase uh, there is percentage-wise because that can help you uh, when you go out on the course and you're trying to figure out what to throw. 
Alrighty, so this last question that we'll go over uh, for this section is a really cool question. I think there's a lot of opinions on this, so I'm really excited to talk about this, but what is the future of course design? Are we looking at longer holes? Are we looking at tighter fairways? What are we looking at? I'm really excited to dive into this, and I'll just share my opinions because I'm not on the uh, PGA committee, on the Pro Tour committee, I'm not picking the courses, so I don't really have a whole lot of input here, but my preference, give me W.R. Jackson every, every weekend. Give me Maple Hill every weekend. Give me The Beast at Waco every weekend. It's got a good mix of wooded and open holes. I prefer more wooded courses, not just for watching, but also for playing. Now, the Disc Golf Pro Tour is also trying to make money. And that's why courses like the Preserve in Minnesota, the Jonesboro Open, uh, the OTB Open that's coming up in two weeks, those are more open courses. Ironically enough, open is also in the name, but it's just, you know, no pun intended there. But those courses bring more money in. How? Viewership. People buying tickets, you can get larger galleries, you can have more people traveling, and it's a lot easier with cell coverage and reception, apparently, even though you can buy things to help with that. Um, anyway, that's a whole nother tangent, but where do I think the future of courses is going? I think there are enough uh, players being vocal about this that I think the Disc Golf Pro Tour is starting to start, you know, find a middle ground where there are open courses but then there are also wooded courses. And even some of the open courses are starting to have a little bit more of a woodsy feel. That's not, uh, it's not perfect. Like it, there's definitely some open courses. I just listed three open courses that have hardly any woods golf to them. So it's not, you know, only going to be one. But I do think that the Disc Golf Pro Tour is starting to find a little bit of a rhythm with course selection. I think they're finding and discovering some courses that weren't known like Northwoods um, from a couple years ago. Like, hey, this is a course that is challenging. People love it and it makes it really good. I definitely don't think smaller baskets of the year, that is not the answer, making smaller baskets. That's just not a good idea. You don't make the target smaller to make it tougher. No, there's already a lot of things that make it tough enough to hit that basket. The other thing I don't think you do is artificial OB. I think that is um, a total disservice to the players doing artificial OB, um, especially when it's unnecessary. We talked about that with, um, oh man, what, what tournament was that? Drawing a blank here. But uh, we talked about that a few episodes ago that artificial OB is not the answer for making tighter fairways. Um, it's just, yeah, that's not the way to do it. That's why I like more wooded golf. You don't even have to have OB for a course to be punishing because if you get off the fairway, hey, look at that. You are probably going to lose a stroke. That's what one of the reasons why Waco is so cool is that there's not a lot of OB in the woods because there doesn't need to be. If you get off the fairway, you're kind of screwed. So I'm really um, been enjoying that or that doesn't make sense. I hope that, so that's kind of where I think the courses are going. I like that they're adding more wooded, but I also see why 
or at least recently there's been more wooded courses. I think they're going to continue to have to do both because they're trying to make money, but they also are finding ways to make disc golf more competitive. And so it's just a super delicate balance. And I definitely think you, they, Disc Golf Pro Tour, needs to listen, not only to fans, but also to players. What are they preferring? Um, because ideally, it'd be great for players to reach a point where they're not having to survive on their winnings because what would happen then is that they would stop showing up to tournaments that they don't like. And if that happens, that's really going to make the Disc Golf Pro Tour pivot a lot with discs, uh, with course selection. But we are many, many, many years uh, away from the top 50 to 75 players um, not needing tournament winnings to survive. Um, as of right now, the majority of disc golfers still need their tournament winnings to survive week to week. Um, so that's a unfortunate reality. I think we're many years away from having the ideal tour schedule, but I think we're a lot closer than we were even two years ago. Now, I know I said that was the last question, but I do want to answer one more um, from a disc golf forum that I'm a part of. And uh, let's see here. This is a really cool question I like because it's something I think about a lot. This is from uh, the Disc Golf Podcast Slack group, Seabay. Giving you a shout out, man. Awesome guy. Uh, he had a good question. Backhand versus forehand and when you might need to throw one versus the other. So basically, when you throw backhand, when you throw forehand. So let's just go on the assumption that you feel confident throwing both because I know some players don't feel confident throwing both. So let's just go on the assumption that you do. You have a good backhand, you have a good forehand, you have this hole in front of you, you could throw both. Which one do you do? Well, the first thing that I recommend is what are you most comfortable throwing in that instance? Um, I, I have learned that going with your gut, especially in disc golf, is one of the best things that you could do. So if you step up to a line and you're like, ooh, my forehand's been a little off today, let me go backhand, or vice versa, start with that. Then you need to consider what is it going to take for you to throw that way, backhand or forehand, to execute the shot. And what you're looking for here is the environment. Is it windy? Is there a slope in the ground? Is there a slick green? Is there OB? What disc are you going to throw? There are all these factors that you have to consider. And then the last thing is what kind what is the shot shape that you need and here's why that is different from the previous step of the environment is like we saw at wr jackson in the champions cup there were holes where it, it was dog leg right but people were throwing backhand and in this is a, this is a perfect example for this question the backhand turnover shot with the putter was a better shot selection than the forehand because the putter or the mid-range would turn and glide and then fade out and land softly, ideally, in the middle of the fairway. Because of that shot selection and shot shape, that disc is going to glide further than a forehand. And here's why. The forehand will be coming and crashing from left to right. Now, as a disc is fading, it fades because it's losing speed. So as a disc loses speed, it's going to obviously slow down, but it starts to fade. And when the disc starts to fade, it has less glide and less carry. 
So you need to consider the, sh uh, the shape of the shot that you need to throw because you have to ask yourself, how far does this disc need to carry? You may find that a backhand, you know, a backhand hyzer is going to crash too soon. So you got to throw a turnover forehand, similar to what Mason Ford and Isaac Robinson were doing with the turnover putters at Champions Cup. And so if you need something that's going to glide more, you may need to, you may need to go technically like opposite of what the hole is showing you. But that's a very touchy shot. And that is something that takes a lot of practice. And you got to get comfortable with the disc that you're throwing. And so that is kind of how I would walk through and teach when to throw backhand and when to throw forehand. What is most comfortable? What is the environment for that shot? Remember wind, the slope, the, the grade of the ground, how quick is the green? Is there OB? What kind of disc are you going to throw? Drivers are going to skip more naturally. So you need to consider that. And then the third and final thing is the shot shape. Do you need something that's going to glide and carry? Or do you, or do you need something that's going to crash and, and land in the fairway and not move? So I hope that answers the question. I think that's a great question. And I think it's a question that Every disc golfer has to ask themselves. It's never a question that you'll stop asking yourself because you're always going to be faced with that dilemma. What should I throw? So great question, Sibay. Appreciate the support. I had a lot more questions that people submitted. Thank you so much to those of you who did submit questions. I will get to them in future episodes. Let's go ahead and let's wrap up this episode, though, talking a quick recap of the Jonesboro Open. I already discussed Kat and Calvin, and so really I just want to kind of share more about the field in general. We saw a lot of good disc golf this past weekend as I'm pulling up my notes here. Uh, we saw a lot of good disc golf this weekend. It was a lot of fun to watch. The tournament was tight. It was really cool seeing so many players in FPO uh, competing. We had Aria Castruida, Castruida uh, competing. Really excited to see her. She's a young up-and-coming FPO player. I've heard her name a couple times. It was really cool seeing her perform well. But as expected, or actually I should say, as not expected, last week I was like, oh, Jonesboro Open, it's going to be so windy. It's going to be tough because historically that's what's happened. But Mother Nature decided to make me look like a fool. And rounds one and two were probably some of the best weather that players have ever experienced at the Jonesboro Open, which is why we saw such high scores. Even the commentators were saying, these scores are so high. And then day three, final day, championship Sunday, we had weather, we had wind, we had cooler weather. And in all that, we saw lower scores. Calvin won, shooting a minus five on the final day. He went double digits the other two rounds and he shot minus five on Sunday and won. So the conditions were definitely unique, very different. Um, that just shows that that course is very scorable and good weather. But the moment there's even a little bit of wind, it's going to make it very, very tough. So let's go ahead and let's review the, uh, the, the final results. Let's Let's start with FPO. I've really enjoyed watching FPO this year. It's been so much fun. I say, I feel like I say it every episode, but just been awesome. So Cat Merch won. They went, she went into a playoff with Haley King. So they both have scores of minus 22, but Cat won the playoff. So first place Cat, second place Haley King, third place Aria Castruida at minus 19, 
Fourth place, Holland Hanley at minus 17. Evelina Solonen, fifth place at minus 16. But her Haley shot minus 8 on the final round. Evelina shot minus 10 to move up a lot of places into fifth place. Surprisingly enough, things were just not clicking for her. Uh, Kristen Tatara, sixth place, minus 15. Ella Hansen, uh, seventh place, minus 14. Henna Blomroos, minus 13. Henna shot even the final round and still finished the top 10. That's how uh, well she played the first few rounds and just how much tougher the course was on the final day because the people below her, uh, a handful of them went even. Some went even over par. This was really hard to watch. Missy Gannon, or excuse me, Heidi Lane, ninth place, minus 12. Missy Gannon finished 10th. She was on the lead card. She finished in 10th. At minus 11, she went plus four on the final round. Uh, she just, she started off really well with her putting, but by the end of the round, her putts were not hitting, like not even hitting chains or basket, just complete air balls. She was really struggling. She took a bunch of bogeys on the back nine, which were unfortunate. She was playing really well. But that is the FPO division. MPO division, Calvin Heimberg, minus 31 in first place. He only went five under on the final round and still won by three strokes. Tied for second, we have Ben Callaway. Good to see his name up there. Isaac Robinson, no surprise there. Eagle McMahon, tied for second place, minus 28. Eagle only shot minus two on the final day. And so, yeah, just incredible pace that he was putting. He basically... Uh, started at minus 26. So on average, he was minus 13 both rounds, which is just insane. Then we had tied for fifth, Andrew Presnell, Bradley Williams, Kyle Klein, Corey Ellis, and James Conrad at minus 26. James went from a minus 17 round two to a minus one final round, which uh, is unfortunate, but believable given just how much the conditions were different from the previous several days. Uh, the players were having to adjust on the fly to the wind without having had a chance to practice it uh, because there are cycling discs over the years because things are getting under, too understable, so they really needed uh, that. And then 10th place, Ganembur at minus 25. So that was the Jonesboro Open. I looked, and I did not see anything this upcoming weekend from the Disc Golf Pro Tour. Not even a Silver Series unless somehow I missed it, but I checked, I double-checked, I triple-checked. So the next tournament is going to be the OTB Open, and that is, uh, I believe it was May 12th through the 14th. So that's next weekend, not this upcoming weekend. So it seems like everyone has an off week, which makes sense because they're going from Arkansas to California, and that's a big travel. And so it kind of be hard to, to do that, like take three days, from Monday to Thursday, go to California, somehow prep for a long disc golf course and just perform. So it's probably good that they took that week off. So they're on the West Coast uh, in two weeks. So super excited for that. We will cover the OTB Open next week in next week's episode. So that's all I have for you today, guys. And I want to sign off here. Teach Play Disc Golf. Go ahead and teach someone this week. Have fun. Give someone some encouragement and help. Make sure you get out and play some disc golf yourself and enjoy it with some friends or a solo round. I love playing solo rounds and just getting outside. That's all I have for you today, everyone. Until next time, have a great round. Mm -hmm.